Hello and welcome to the Uncredible Adventures podcast with me, your host Cornelius. I'm really pleased that you're listening today. Greetings once again to the followers of the pod, the people that tune in without fail, the guys that have been with me now for quite a few weeks. I really feel like we're starting to get to know each other. And a warm welcome to anyone who's discovering this podcast for the first time. It's really great to have you here. I'm really pleased that you decided to press play. Just give me a few minutes of your time, listen in, it'll creep up on you and hopefully you will get absorbed in that incredible adventure. So this episode is part one of a two-part special. It's a complete episode on its own. Don't worry, you can listen to it and never listen to the next one. But I have just so many stories about the subject I'm talking about. I couldn't fit it all into one podcast. So there's going to be a follow-up episode next week, which will take a slightly different direction. So I visited Ireland, the Emerald Isle, exactly three times in my life. Tonight, I'm going to talk to you about the first time I went. This episode really is, it's a love letter. It's a love letter to two wonderful Irish grandparents that I had a long time ago and for not nearly long enough. It's about Ireland and the people of Ireland. And it's about a journey that I took there with an English-Irish family when I was a teenager. And on top of that, it's about me getting offered a fight by an Irish lad in the most chivalrous, consent-seeking and sportsmanlike way that I ever have in my life. This episode is also a love letter to Blind Boy. He makes the best podcast in the world. He is the inspiration for the format of this show. And it's a story that he told about how and why he started podcasting that started me on this incredible adventure. If you've listened to the Blind Boy podcast, and you really should, you'll know one of the things he doesn't hold back talking about the terrible history of the Imperial English and the things that happened in Ireland. And it, it can be quite hard listening at times. And I'm an Englishman. I listen to it, it can feel quite personal. Sometimes it's been awkward. So this episode is happy, it's jolly, it's funny. The next episode, I'm going to lean a little bit into that painful history, a little bit of that awkwardness, and I'm going to talk about the history of a place called Kilmainham Jail in Dublin, which is a place I visited the second time I ever went to Ireland. So a bit more historical fact on the next episode, if that is your thing, but don't worry, plenty of laughs thrown in, some really funny stories from the third time I ever went to Ireland. But that's for next week. This week, we're ready to go. It's time for you to relax, get comfy. Join me in this episode. It's called The Father of All Fenlons. And when you get to the end, it would be absolutely cracking if you gave me a shout on Twitter. I'm Cornelius. My Twitter name is at UncrediblePod. Welcome to Uncredible Adventures. Throughout my teenage years, I had a girlfriend that had two Irish grandparents who lived in the UK, and they were an incredibly close-knit family, very much the grandparents. They, they lived close by, they were really involved in everything that their grandchildren did. Very, very close family, so I got very close to them, and it was my absolute 
pleasure and good fortune for for a number of years through some of the most important formative years that effectively I had these Irish grandparents and I absolutely treasure that time I treasure these people wonderful people uh, and a wonderful part of my life and and these really were proper grandparents in in any way you cut it or any way you could imagine these were proper grandparents lovely couple they they used to have one pair of reading glasses that they would share so depending on who was trying to read the newspaper or look at a menu or had something to do they constantly passing this one pair of glasses back and forward to each other and I'm sure they could have afforded I'm sure they could have managed to get their hands on another pair but it was one of the things that gave them a bit of a bond it was something that gave them a reason to talk it it made them share that experience and, and that's absolutely a goal I think I have for a relationship is to be with someone that you can share a pair of glasses with. So only only one one of you can see at a time, but you're happy to take it in turns and you're happy to share that gift of sight with each other. My absolute favourite story or my favourite memory was one time they bought a sachet of kettle descaler. So a little sachet that's got some white crystals in. I think they're just citric acid or or something like that, similar, but a, a little sachet of white crystals, and you put them in your kettle. And the instructions are, you put them in the kettle, you fill the kettle with water, you boil it, and then you pour it away. And then you put fresh water in, I think, and you boil it again and pour it away. And then I think a third time, to, to get rid of any last residue, you fill the kettle with water one last time and you pour it away. By which point all of the lime scale and all of the grime should be gone from your kettle, it's sparkling clean and you can continue to use it. So they bought these sachets, put them in the kettle, boiled it, poured it away, filled the kettle up for uh, the second, the rinse or the first rinse that you have, left it to boil and then forgot what they'd done. And one of them made a cup of tea with this water that was effectively the second boil after they'd poured away the, the descaler tablet. And it wasn't until they'd both sat down and finished their cup of tea that it suddenly struck them. They suddenly realised, wait a minute, we've drunk the kettle deep scaler. We didn't pour it away. We, we, we drunk it. And in that moment, they were, bless them, they were, they were overcome immediately by the, the sure knowledge and the absolute certainty that they'd poisoned themselves. They drank some kind of deadly poison and it was only a matter of time. They only had maybe minutes, maybe hours left on this earth. Now, of course, as far as I'm aware, even even back in the days when they used to put lead in paint and asbestos in everything, I, I'm pretty sure they wouldn't use anything poisonous in, in a kettle descaler. But if you put yourself in their shoes and you imagine if you knew you had just drunk poison... And you thought that was it. How would how would you act? What would you what would you do? What what self preservation? How would would you go berserk, running around? Would you be ringing ambulances? Would you try and make yourself vomit? All of these things you might do. But the way that these grandparents acted to this this tragic and untimely news was with a, a rare type of stoicism, a kind of a resignation to fate. And well, we've had a good innings. We've had a good life. It's a terrible mistake, but this is what happens. So they reacted very, very calmly. They had the conversation. They both agreed that this was it. So they went upstairs, put on their, their best clothes, put on their Sunday best, checked that the house was tidy, 
went downstairs, sat in their chairs, <laughs> held hands across the chairs, and, and sat there and waited to die. And it was in exactly this position that a few hours later, one of the uncles called round. And when they didn't answer the door, he let himself in with his key uh, and went through to the back room where they were sitting with the lights off as it was starting to get dark in the evening, just sitting, <laughs> sitting there peacefully waiting for the end to come. And when he asked him, he said, "What what's happened? And, and he, they explained to him, look... This is terrible news. We didn't want you to find out like, like this, but we've poisoned ourselves and we're, we're just waiting for the end to come. And quite quickly, I, I think they established, look, no, you're absolutely fine. The, the the worst that you've done is that your cup of tea probably tasted not very nice. You, you, you're not even going to get an upset stomach from this. You're absolutely fine. And the the questions came off. I said, why did you, why didn't you call someone? Why didn't you try and call someone for help or why didn't you call an ambulance or why didn't you do that and the answer that the grandma gave and and consistently gave whenever we spoke about this we spoke about it a lot because everyone found it really funny she said oh and i'm not i'm not going to do the accent i'm not going to do that throughout this entire episode which is about ireland but she said you can imagine the accent and she said oh we didn't want to make a fuss we didn't want to bother anyone now, I don't know if you've got grandparents or if you're fortunate enough to have grandparents, but if you do and that story doesn't make you want to pick up the phone now and give them a ring and see how they're doing, uh, I don't know what will. But they, they were really interesting history talking um, to both of them. They, they both came from different parts of Ireland and met once they'd come over to the UK. But the granddad always told the story and I don't know how much of it was true. He was an incredible storyteller. He he always had a quip or a joke and he, he had loads of things to say. But he used to tell the story. He, he grew up in a pretty rural part of Ireland where there wasn't much opportunity. But he was a fiercely intelligent man, had, had a really strong wit and character and a, and a burning intelligence. But... He said that he got to about the age of 12 or 13 and the, the school that he went to, effectively, they, they said to him, look, we've taught you everything we know. You, you've learned the entirety of the knowledge that we can share with you at school and it's time for you to go and, and, and leave and get some work. We can't teach you anymore. So you can imagine this character who who was a, definitely an intelligent man, fiercely intelligent man with with very little education. He, he You know, he could read and everything like that but he had no love for academia he'd never been been embraced by academia he he used to just take life as it came and and where he did use his his brain was all around interacting with people and jokes and quips and funny things like that but you can imagine the the challenge for someone like that moving from ireland where they had virtually no opportunity to to england without any qualifications and with with a small amount of education but he did various things he used his gift of the gab and he he ran a small business very successfully and it remained a small business but i think that's the way he wanted it and it supported a comfortable but modest lifestyle that they lived and that's incredible really when you think how 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 rough the world is and how hard it is to to get along that was no mean feat 
particularly when you think how hostile England and the UK was. It, this is the time we're talking about, you know, the 60s or maybe slightly earlier. The, the no blacks, no dogs, no Irish signs everywhere. It's certainly not a welcoming place. Nevertheless, he persevered. They, uh, they had a number of children, some of, some of whom were incredibly successful, reached very high levels in, in executive jobs. And it, it just goes to show, I think, really the, the potential that was there and, and given a proper education, how far that intelligence that was, was genetically passed on could take someone. He was a very old-fashioned type of guy. Everything was proper, so he was always dressed very smart in a kind of tweedy type of way but always wearing a, a jacket always wearing a tie always wearing a shirt and slacks i guess them i don't know what that means but what what, what i would what i would call slacks um trousers with the elasticated waistbands he was a drinker he loved a pint he loved the pub he had an, an absolutely magnificent beer belly and he was also, I think, about five foot four inches tall. So you, you get the picture here of a chap who was dressed in in an old-fashioned suit, always dressed smart, with his hair, his white hair, full head of white hair, slicked back, just over five foot tall, like a little sort of humpity dumpty man. And he was always, always looking for the crack, always looking for a joke. He was the most avidly social person you've ever met and, and one one of my previous podcasts i've talked about some of these things about the the map is not the territory and how you get what you're looking for and how the brain perceives and and, and, and takes a picture of the, the the world around you based on what it expects to see and then only delivers to you or, or primarily delivers to you things that confirm what you're looking for and this was a guy that was wherever he went he assumed that people were nice they were good they wanted to chat to him people wanted to have a a bit of a laugh and a, a bit of a joke and everyone was up for it and and true enough he found it wherever he went he would talk to absolutely anyone without a, a single piece of prejudice you know he'd see the you know he'd see a nutter in the street someone that clearly lost their mind or was doing something crazy and he, he wouldn't care he'd walk he'd walk right up to them and and try and say something funny he'd try and give them a pat or give them a you know a bit of a joke or have a bit have a bit of fun with them um the most interesting part was his hearing was really bad he, he couldn't hear very well so he he, he used to have these wonderful exchanges where you see him a bus conductor you know you'd get on the bus and the bus conductor would sell him a ticket and he would make a joke he'd crack a little joke or say oh you know and and pat the guy on the elbow and whatever the guy said back he he he, he probably wouldn't hear it but it wouldn't matter he'd assume that it was good-natured that it was fun, that it was someone having a joke back, and he'd react regardless of what the person did in that way. So he would laugh and say, "Oh yeah," um, and it 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 was amazing because I, I used to watch him. You know, really, he talked to really grumpy people or people that were out for trouble or whatever it was, and just this this idea of this man coming up and being nice to you, and regardless of how you react. He continues to be nice to you. He continues to to smile at you and laugh and acts like you've said something entertaining and he's pleased to meet you. He used to get the most wonderful reaction wherever he went. And you couldn't, there was no no waiter or waitress that 
that, that ever came and dropped something off at the table without getting a, a pat on the hand. He'd, he'd, you know, he'd give him a pat on the hand and give him a kind word and try and say something funny to them. The grandma was a different character, more reserved, lovely, kind and gentle lady. Again, very, very smart, incredibly intelligent, had received, I think, a bit more education, but not enough. Not what she was due, not what was was fair and, and, and should have been right for a person like her. But she was inquisitive she was exploring she used to read a lot she really constantly and even when they were getting on quite old she'd constantly be broadening her horizons trying new foods reading new things very very open-minded lady who who kind of dedicated herself in a in a in a reserved and, and, and not putting herself too far forward, but in a reserved way, would constantly be looking to explore the world and learn things and improve her mind. I'm not in contact with, with any of the family anymore. And sadly, I don't, you know, I don't know um, whatever became, but I, I treasure these memories. And it's, it's, this is really a, quite, a, quite an intimate and important podcast for me because I'm talking about something very, very close to my heart. But there's a good story attached so that the grandfather could trace his his heritage or he could trace his blood back all the way to 1879. And in 1879, in a town called Wexford, which is in the sort of south east side of Ireland, there was a chap called Michael Fenlon, and they call him the father of all Fenlons. So the story is that out of this small or relatively small town of Wexford in Ireland, he was married three times and he had 62 children. Now that alone is is absolutely mind-boggling. I'm sure you've done the mental math, same as me. Um, married three times, 62 children. I don't know whether they're all born within wedlock, but we're looking at 20 children per mother, which sounds incredibly unlikely it was actually fairly well documented or, or as, as well as anything i guess is is documented in um the 1880s so i don't know how reliable it is but certainly this chap had a lot of children you can look it up you can read about it there were newspapers from ireland at the time i've i've seen it when i've researched newspapers out of the the usa three wives is 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 very is uh, fairly common and always what they're saying and and a lot of children with the with the last child born in 1883 it's probably unlikely that all the children survived there was a reason people were having so many children back then but certainly a great deal of them did and you imagine that must be two or three generations at least which helps you understand why they call this Michael Fenlon the father of all Fenlons, because there's a hell of a lot of people all over the world that can trace their their lineage or can trace their blood directly back to this one person. So the story I'm about to tell goes back, it must be about 20, between 20 and 25 years, that someone, some of the family that were in Wexford, so some of the Fenlons that were still living in Wexford, decided to try and host a family reunion. A couple of generations down the line, those 62 children had gone out into the world, and there must be thousands of people 
across the world. And it occurs to me, actually, as I'm saying this, that I, I don't know how... I can't fathom how this was organised. I can't work out how this must have been... how this must have come about, because this was way before the internet, way before... This is before mobile phones, certainly before the internet. There was no Facebook. And and that's kind of struck me. I've gone a little bit off piece here, because I've just realised, how on earth do people communicate? How did you share news like this? I don't know, and I wish I did. And I, I've... Do you know? Do you have any idea how do we? How did something like that used to get off the ground? But anyway, whatever the the method was, we the the family heard about it. They heard about this reunion, and decided to have a family trip back to the back to the homeland, back to Ireland for a for a week to visit, go to this family reunion. Which originally they were trying to make it a, a Guinness Book of Records thing. That that never panned out. I'm not sure entirely why, but nevertheless, we we packed up and we decided to go to Ireland. It was my great pleasure to to come along as as one of the grandchildren. And so a big group of us. There were there were several uncles and their children who were the same age as, as me the, and and also one of the granddad's brothers he had several but i think the brother he was closest with we all decided to go so we bundled into several cars in a convoy drove across the the uk and across on the ferry to ireland and i don't know if you've ever been on the ferry across the irish sea but it's pretty choppy it's a choppy sea it's quite a rough crossing but it was it was wonderful. It was all part of the adventure, and great to see the granddad and his brother. As we went across, they were they were really regressing back to their childhood. These 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 men. I think the excitement of going back to Ireland, you could see it kind of reignited something in them. A, a long part of them that they'd put behind them for a long time, and they started getting very giggly. They were chatting with each other. And they started also to get a, a bit boisterous. I remember someone did a, a tea run and I asked for a hot chocolate and they were both absolutely sniggering and laughing to each other. The idea of, of me, a, a man or an adolescent, ordering a hot chocolate. Well, they, of course, they were doing the proper thing. They were sinking pints the entire journey. And the granddad was a, a drinker. And the granddad's brother was also a drinker, and most of the the uncles were as well. And they, I don't know whether this is true, but this is certainly the story they told me that they had learned to be drinkers from their father. He was a big drinker, and that was a result of World War One. Apparently, they they found it very. This is what they told me again. I haven't fact checked this, but th this is what they absolutely swore that their father was in World War One on the front lines, and at that point. At one point, at least, they couldn't get any food out. Very, very difficult to to get food out to the front lines. But what they could get was barrels of Guinness. So they used to transport barrels of Guinness out to the front line for, for nutrition, for the nutritional value for the troops on the front line. And when these troops came back from the war, having experienced the, the, the horrors of war and having existed for large periods of time with nothing but guinness in you so several pints a day they all came back with a taste for the drink now my memories of of ireland are a little bit hazy partly because i was almost old enough to have a have a drink probably not quite but but in that part of ireland it, it could let it slide but also because so much time has go past but but some things are very very clear in my head so i was buddied up with one of the uncles 
I was buddied up with Uncle Fion, who had a fierce temper. He was a, he was a very fastidious man, again, always dressed in a suit, but liked everything to be just so everything proper. He, his shoes were always incredibly well shined. Everything had to be neat and tidy. Everything had to be perfect. He had absolutely no time for fools or, or anyone who had a difference of opinion. But I was buddied up with him and we went to stay in a little B&B and we arrived and I was to share a room with him and, and various other people were cuddled up. Various other people were, were coupled up and I remember luck. I remember being very, very careful to make sure that I was acted in no way like the teenage boy I was. Make sure I was very, very neat, that I kept the room tidy, that I, I was quiet just to try and not get on the wrong side of this Uncle Fionn. I do remember every day, everywhere we went. So we stayed in a couple of different B&Bs there. And every day in every place it was always an irish breakfast so an irish breakfast is similar to 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 what i would call an english breakfast so bacon eggs and sausages baked beans and mushrooms tomatoes all the rest but the one thing that was always on it was white pudding which i don't think i've ever seen before and i haven't seen since and it's very very similar to black pudding only only it's it's white or it's sort of beige colored and i think from what I've read, it, it basically is black pudding, but without the blood in it. But clearly that was a really important bit because that would you, you could not have a breakfast in Ireland that wouldn't have both black pudding and white pudding. But we had a, we had a lovely few days in Ireland. I don't really recall what we spent the days doing, but the evenings we visited pubs and it's a really interesting pub culture in Ireland. Some of the, some of the, the pubs don't all look like you'd expect them to. So some of the pubs that we visited were literally like someone's front room. And I, I spoke last week, was it, or the week before, I was talking about having a dentist that had the surgery in his front room. Well, in this part of Ireland, again, I don't know how common this was, but you would you would have a tiny pub that was literally someone's front room with... We, we were quite a big group, so it was about 11 of us, and we'd go in some nights and completely fill a front room where someone would come through and be serving beer and it's really interesting because i've started to see you have a few micro pubs popping up here and there there's, there's one in dorchester that i've um seen that is a very very small pub and, and and this was almost there before that but we also went to some bigger pubs and some of the things that happen in these pubs are things straight out of the movies and, and it's the only place i've ever experienced it and one of them was that you would just generally have people singing and dancing, not not paid professionals, not entertainment would be put on, but just this sense of community and this sense of togetherness that when you're in the pub and everyone's had a drink, someone would start singing and the entire pub would join in. And it is honestly one of the most fantastic experiences that I've ever had in my life and again this is 25 years ago so is it still like that can you still find places I'd, I'd like to think you can but I, I remember being really really into it this idea that the the, the granddad used to he, he he always used to try and sing and a couple of times he'd start singing different songs in pubs and you'd find almost the entire pub joining in some of them were really mournful and slow and sad songs others were were jolly and, and much more upbeat and people would be beating out a drum on the table and people would be climbing up 
dancing around, clattering. I'm not sure if anyone actually danced on the table, but it, it definitely felt like people did. People would definitely be dancing. And then a lot of the songs were quite were catchy enough, certainly for me to, to sing along to bits and, you know, learn a chorus and, and get involved whenever it came through. And at one point I'd had a couple of pints and my head was spinning and I realised that I could start a sing song. I could actually lead one. Now, obviously, I don't know any songs, Irish songs at all. And I, I was racking my brain trying to think, well, what, what, what's, it, what's the closest that I can think of? What's a, an appropriate song a crowd like this or an audience like this, something that sounds like it and the the only song that i could come up with was you'll never walk alone by jerry and the pacemakers and it had that it's got the sort of long syllables the the long words and it felt like something i could sing at the top of my voice and i started i, I stood up <laughs> emboldened by it by a few pints i stood up and i started to sing and sure enough slowly people joined in in the pub enough people knew it and we had a big sing song it was one of the greatest moments of my life to be in a pub at 15 or 16 years old or however old i was having had a few pints and leading a sing song and after it finished i i, I wanted to do another one and i was you know i was trying to i, I was trying to think of another the song and and one of the uncles just had a quiet word in my ear and he said you shouldn't do another one he said look everyone's sung along but you don't want to be singing english songs and i took the i took the advice and i i, I sort of piped down a bit and then tried to join into the ones and i never really understood that i certainly didn't understand it at the time it wasn't for years later and in the next episode i'm going to talk about another time that i went to ireland and, and learned a lot more about the history of the british empire and the british in ireland and i can sort of understand now a bit more some of those feelings but although this was incredibly friendly and welcoming and nice i i think having a, a loud mouth 15 16 year old singing english songs that are associated to english football clubs is probably a bit much on that occasion nevertheless a treasured memory so we made it one night we made it to this reunion which was held in some kind of community center i think but or, or possibly a leisure center it was, it was a big old place that had been set up. They had a band playing and they, of course they had a bar and there was lots of drinking and lots of dancing. A lot of people getting off with each other. A lot of people um, out on the pull, which to this day, I, uh, it always tickles me a bit to imagine that you, <laughs> I think the, the one the one place that you probably wouldn't go to try and pull someone would be a family reunion. And I think we, we were several generations past and we'd had people into marrying, but I I was quite shocked at the time to look around to see the number of people who appeared to be chatting each other up and getting off with. But it was a very friendly crowd, lots of lots of banter. And at one point I went through to the toilet, I think, and I was coming back. And as I came back, this young Irish lad who was about my age and about the same size as me, and he kind of stood in the way and he blocked me. And he was giving me that look, so I couldn't get through the door, and he gave me that look that I suddenly realised, oh, Christ, here we go, this is bad news, you know, this is someone that's looking for trouble. And he looked at me, and he said, will we have a fight now then? And I was absolutely horrified, I was terrified, I thought, oh no, what's happening? And I said, no, 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 oh, uh, no, 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 sorry, sorry, I don't want to fight. 
And he looked at me and he had a big grin on his face. And he said, oh, OK. He said, when you've had a few pints, if you you know where I am, come and find me. <laughs> it was the most gentlemanly way that I've ever had someone offer me a fight. Um, and I did see quite a bit of rough and tumble that night, especially around closing time and things like that. But there was it was all with this really good natured sort of almost a sport vibe. There was a very high level of consent. And this guy trying to start a fight with me when he when he asked, will we have a fight now? He he wasn't trying to force it on me. He was genuinely asking in case I was up for it. Do you fancy having a bit of a fight? And I saw a few people that, that, that genuinely operated like that. Most fascinating thing for me to observe. I, I've, I've seen plenty of um, trouble in pubs and drunk people and people behaving like they shouldn't, but never to this level where um, you've got this kind of sportsmanship where you, you check the other person is consenting and you check they're up for it. You ask them, do you want to fight? And if if they say yes, then you, you go at it and you have a few fists. And then and then af afterwards, you're, you're kind of best friends and you're patting each other on the back and, and cheering them on. I didn't take him up on the offer. Part of me kind of wishes I had. I think you don't know yourself unless you've been in a fight. And what a nice opportunity to be able to have a pub fight in such a friendly atmosphere. <laughs> with someone that is wishing you well and sees it as an act of sport but nevertheless when the party was over we uh, walked our way back I had uh, obviously Uncle Fion with me so uh, there was never too much trouble he was fiery enough to, to scare off anyone that really did have malevolent intent and I went back to being very very quiet and very very neat and I think that the greatest, one of the greatest compliments I got on the on the last morning when we were packing up and it was time to go and we'd we'd have a lovely time and I'd really bonded with um, this uncle and he said to me, he said, I don't like kids, you're okay. And there's only a couple more things that I remember from that trip. I remember the ferry trip home. Now, the ferry trip on the way out had been such a jolly and excited event and the granddad the uncle like i said were uh, reliving their youth and and turning back into sort of teenage boys as we watched the journey back was much more somber i think we'd all had a lovely time it was returned to reality it it meant i'm sure a lot more to to the granddad and and to the the granddad's brother and the people that had originally come from ireland to be leaving than it did to me but it was it was a much more somber affair. I remember the granddad was drinking brandy, which was which was not a good sign. He generally drank a lot of pints, and drinking brandy was kind of uh, it, it was drinking with intent. It was not just just jolly drinking. It was drinking with intent. So, yeah, a sad and somber journey back from Ireland, and we got off the ferry and we got back into the car, and I was in it. I was in a car with with uncle fion was was a passenger with me in the back and i think one other and a couple of people in the front and we waited until or, or uncle fion waited until right until we got on the motorway and everyone was tired at this point it'd been a long trip we'd all we'd all had a few late nights and a few things to drink and looking forward to just getting home to our beds and and sleeping off this sad mood but it, Uncle Fionn waited right until we hit the motorway to to announce I need the toilet I've got to go to the toilet so everyone kind of groaned and said oh look we've only just got going but okay but 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 no one dared challenge him so the next services we came to the driver of the car took us off and parked up in the services and, and we all sat there in the car and waited 
uh, and we waited for about 15 minutes while he was inside there and eventually after about a quarter of an hour of us all you know just wanting to get home and looking at our watches and again this is before the days of mobile phones or the internet or anything like that so not much to keep us entertained he eventually came out and he looked really angry he came out and he got in the car and we pulled out on the services carried on driving down the road and just as we got back on the motorway again he said we got to stop at the next toilet and i said what what do you what do you mean we just you just went to the toilet there what's wrong are you unwell or something he said he said no it was disgusting it was disgusting it was dirty i'm not going to toilet in there so another 15 minutes we we went down the road and the next services we had to pull off again so he could go in and use the toilet and um presumably i didn't get a report on that one but presumably it was okay because when he came out we all we all got back in the car we all headed off again and headed back so that was my first ever trip to to ireland at a really impressionable age you know the standouts for me were these and and it's very stereotypical but this is genuinely my experience of these these cozy pubs you know pubs in people's front rooms or or really cozy atmosphere pubs where people go to be sociable people go to talk to each other it's you don't see that so much even nice pubs in the uk generally i wouldn't you go there to talk to people you know you know unless it's a big party pub or something but you know a quiet evening pub without music but but over there it's all about the social aspect it's all about sharing and talking to people and the sing songs are all part of that so wonderful pub culture and the second part is a really chivalrous attitude towards violence and, and fighting and the idea that you get consent and you, you make sure the other person wants it. You give them the opportunity to say no, but provided you're both consenting, you can have a jolly good punch up. And then at the end of it, you can sort of shake hands and no hard feelings. But that is the end of this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm going to continue next week because there's 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 two more occasions that i went to ireland and they were both very different to this one in different ways and i've got some good stories to share about them but one of them in particular we're going to explore this point in time when i was told look you shouldn't be singing english songs too loud in an irish pub and it didn't mean much to me at the time now i understand a lot more and and i and i want to explore a little bit of that and try and try and try and explain and try and explore a bit why um 25 years ago and an english lad shouting his head off in an irish pub and trying to sing english songs was not not massively offensive but not not warmly welcome shall we say but listen thank you very much for listening i am cornelius this is uncredible adventures if you're not already following or talking to me on twitter you can find me on twitter the the handle is at uncredible pod i'd love to hear from you i'd love to to hear your feedback i'd love you to be part of the community we've got quite a lot of people now that are talking we're starting to get some quite good activity if this is your your first incredible adventures thank you so much for listening thank you for making this far have a look through the catalog we've got 11 episodes out now they're all pretty different some are funnier some are a bit more fact-filled but if you enjoyed what you heard to say please do have a listen through some of the older episodes and next week it'll be ireland part two thank you Until then, stay safe, thank you, and this has been Uncredible Adventures with me, Cornelius. I'm really glad that I had you here. (laughs) 